I was at a party for the WFMU staff recently, and it's really interesting. I have so many great people, but uh, I was talking with a lot of people. We're talking about what is what makes a good interview and what doesn't, and what makes a good guest, and how to prepare, and sort of everybody sharing their trade secrets with each other. Very interesting topic. I I don't know. It's kind of. Hard, hard to talk about it with some people, easy to talk about with some. Anyway, I enjoyed it. That's where I'm getting going with this. So we're talking about what one of the things that I always say makes a great guest for me is people that answer the questions, and maybe that sounds redundant or, or serious, uh, but more often than not, when you ask a question and people don't answer it, their non-answer usually is is not satisfying. I guess once in a while you, you run up with some genius who takes your your ball and goes in a different direction and and uh, makes does something better than you could ever imagine. But usually that's not the case. Usually you just you just you know people take their insecurity or whatever their pre-programmed thing is and they go in that direction. And those are the kind of guests that drive me crazy. So all of that to tell you that today's guest, Winfield Parker, uh, pretty much answered the questions, which makes him in, in my book a, a, a great guest. You know, uh, he was short and to the point and just uh, answered answered what we whatever it was I was interested in. Uh, he comes from a real interesting music scene. Somebody I've never interviewed from the sort of Baltimore soul music scene. Uh, so we talk a lot about that here. Uh, if you're going to the uh, Ponderosa Stomp in New Orleans, you'll get to see him there this October. Uh, that's it. I hope you're doing well. Contact me, Michael S. at WFMU.org anytime. And here's my interview with the great Winfield Parker. All right, there's Winfield Parker. Good morning. Uh, I, he joins us right now on the telephone. Uh, he's a soul singer, a songwriter, a producer, a saxophonist, and more. We'll find out all about it. From Baltimore, Maryland, Winfield, good morning, and welcome to WFMU. How are you doing? Good morning to you. You grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Tell me about your childhood. Did you? Did you? Because you started out as a saxophone player before you uh, became a singer. D- did you learn to play sax as a kid in school? What was? How did you come to music? Well, actually, I didn't start off with a saxophone. Uh, my uh, family, I lived out in Howard County, and my uncles and cousins had a little group called the Tall Cedars, and I used to sit around and uh, listen to them a lot. And then a cousin of mine used to road manager for the Swallows. So my cousins bought me a guitar for uh, my birthday. So I learned how to play the guitar first. But then as I went to the, the high school, they had a high school band, so I picked up the saxophone. So I learned how to really play the saxophone in, in school. Gotcha. And uh, were your parents uh, thinking that you would go become a doctor, or what was the uh, the the projection for you? Well, they didn't have one. Uh, you know, they made me, you know, because I was like born out in the country, like on a farm. You know, all I did was work and it got a dollar here and a dollar there, and you know my mother, she, you know, she was glad that I was into music, but didn't push me. You know, uh, we just came together in school. My cousins and I got a little band in school called the VJs, and uh, it went on from there. Then I had a, my cousin was managing the group, uh, Leon Dorsey, and uh, we just went on from there. 
So you, you, you formed this band, the VJs, and Sammy Fitzhugh and the Moroccos, and you guys are backing bands who are coming through the area. Is that what happened? Well, I left the VJs. Uh, it seemed like they didn't want to go anywhere, and so I started playing with Sammy Fitzhugh and the Moroccos. And then Sammy Fitzhugh's manager, Mr. John V. Bishop, used to have a lot of shows up in uh, up in West Virginia and uh, up in Charlestown and, you know, all over. So then we used to back up everybody that used to come to uh, this club called the John Brown Farm. And we used to back up a lot of folks that come up there, you know, like, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Buster Brown, uh, Shirley and Lee, and all of those type folks, Maxine Brown. So what year are we talking about for that that era? Oh, my God. Let's see. <laughs> I guess it was like early 60s. Early 60s. And so guys like Shirley and Lee would come through and you'd have to learn all their songs and back them up? Right, right, right. So what kind of what kind of venues were these? Were these mixed race venues? Were these white venues, black venues? Well, they're mostly black. And tell me what kind of a, a crowd it was, what kind of a night it was, how much money you guys would end up making? Well, we didn't make a whole lot of money. You know, if I made $50 a night, I was doing good. You know, back then, I guess that they would call that a lot of money. But uh, we didn't make a whole lot of money. We were just having fun and, and you know, doing what we do. So a few years later, you hook up with this guy, Rufus E. Mitchell, who is a super, super interesting guy. Uh, he owned, I think he started with a dry cleaner, then became well-known as a guy who rented tuxedos. And he booked music at a place called Cars Beach, which was a, I look, I did a lot, there's a lot of cool pictures of Cars Beach on, on the web. Uh, and I suggest folks go take a look. Uh, this was a segregated beach resort near Annapolis, Maryland. Tell me about the scene at Cars Beach. Beach and tell me about this guy, Rufus Mitchell. Okay, but what happened with Mr. Rufus Mitchell was uh, he knew John V. Bishop that managed Sammy Fitzhugh. And Mr. Mitchell used to book Cars Beach. So Mr. Mitchell would have a group come in at Cars Beach and Mr. and he would get in touch with John V. Bishop. So there'd be a two-night thing for the group that was coming in. They would play Cars Beach one night. John Brown Farm or Shamrock in the other night, the next night. So that's how that happened. So then when I left uh, and got my another band, when I left Sammy Fitch and them, I formed a band called the Imperial Thrillers. So then Mr. Mitchell started booking me. And then I was playing at Cars Beach like twice a month, opening shows for everybody that came there. So then he decided that... Uh, that I could sing because I used to sing a Little Richard song all the time. So he thought I could sing, so he recorded his first, my first record, My Love for You. Gotcha. And, I mean, tell me about the scene at Cars Beach because, I mean, things like that just don't exist anymore. What was it like? Well, Cars Beach was down in Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, people used to come in there in carloads. They used to charge to come in by carloads, not per person. People used to get in their trunks and everything coming into Cars Beach. <laughs> but Cars Beach was like, oh, it's just regular beach. And they had a great big stage there that was uh, like underneath of a uh, canvas or something like that. And we did shows there. Everybody went to Cars Beach. You name it, they were there. 
Yeah, I mean, you look at the list of, you know, every famous R&B performer played there, and the crowds are huge, and it uh, it looks like uh, it's just a real unique time in history, that, that Cars Beach scene. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Rufus Mitchell is uh, starts this uh, label, Rujack Records, and uh, starts your career as a singer, putting out some 45s. I know that a lot of these 45s have become collector's items over the years. I'm curious, did you save copies of these records? Do you have a, a complete library of uh, your own music? I got a lot of my 45s, yeah, I do. I, and I, what I did, I went online, and my manager now, she bought the 45. Some of them was costing like $100. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm saying, wow, you know, I'm getting $100, paying $100 for one of my uh, 45s. I said, wow. Yeah, I've seen that. They've become quite collectible over the years. Uh, right. You cut, I think, 17 records for Rujak, and like we said, they're tough to find unless you want to spend a top dollar. But the good news is that I think about uh, about a year ago, uh, Omnivore Records released this record called Mr. Clean Winfield Parker at Rujak, which uh, has all of those 45s and the demos and some alternate takes and uh, unheard things that that sort of stayed in the can for years and years and years. So if folks want to pick those up, they don't they can get them all for for one reasonable price. Uh, and I know that in some ways, you know, that sort of uh, those kind of things always help a guy's career when your music comes out again on CD. Is that right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, I appreciate Andover uh, picking, uh, you know, picking my music up, and uh, you know, I let them have everything that was on Rujak because when Mr. Mitchell just before he passed, he gave me all the, the Rujak music, and I don't know what was on the tapes. Some of them didn't have names, but I was just grateful that my attorney Scott Johnson knew somebody at Andover, and we worked it out that way. Uh, I want to remind everybody, Winfield Parker is our guest today. Like I mentioned, there's a record called Mr. Clean, his most recent release uh, on the Omnivore label. He'll be at the Ponderosa Stomp October 5th uh, through 7th in New Orleans, Louisiana. And his website, if I got it right, it's winfieldparker.com. That's correct. So folks can check there to to, to see uh, what's going on with you. Now, I, I believe your your biggest hit was 1971, your your version of uh, SOS Stopper on site, uh, number 48 on the Billboard Soul charts, uh, and, and, and a terrific record. Well, well, how'd you pick that song? Was that your choice or a producer's choice? It wasn't my choice. It was Jimmy Bishop's choice. Uh, and he would pick quite a few songs, like... Uh, uh, the thing I did of Mac Davis, Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me. He did that for uh, Lord Price's label, GSF Records. Although you didn't tour that much, you did play on bills throughout the years with The Temptations and James Brown and Eddie James and Little Richard and Lloyd Price and uh, Patti LaBelle and the Blue Bells, the Four Tops, Carla Thomas, a, a lot of the all-time soul greats. Right, I opened shows for just about all of them. And then I played for Richard for a, couple, a little while, you know, saxophone uh, and that didn't last too long, but uh, it was it was great experience. But mostly all of those folks, like uh, Temptation, I, I opened the show for them off and on for six years. Temptation, Four Tops, Moms Mabley, you know. And uh, over the years, because Mr. Bishop, I mean, Mr. Mitchell used to have all those groups to come to Cosby's. This is how I got to be on shows with a lot of them. You know, Rufus Thomas, uh, Carla Thomas, the Shirelles. The Temptation, Curtis Mayfield, and Impressions, 
and all of those type folks. Everybody was at Cosby, so I opened the show for them at least twice a month. Yeah, so you're sort of the the house act there, opening for everybody. I mean, it sounds really exciting, just even to you know to play those shows, but also to get a chance to see all of those folks. Right, right. Uh, is there anybody who sticks out in your mind as being particularly fantastic? Well, I tell you, uh, I never was on a show with uh, Sam Cooke, but that was my idol. Sam Cooke was my idol. But to be on a show with someone was the Temptations and the Four Tops. It, it was a, a, that was really a nice experience, and especially Moms Mabley. Just about everybody, you know, I was just proud. And Otis Redding, that, that was my buddy. Uh, that was my buddy because Mr. Mitchell, uh, when Otis first had his uh, first song, out, These Arms of Mine, he came to Baltimore to be at Cars Beach. He didn't have a band, so my band backed him up at Cars Beach. So then when, when the record got so big, when Otis went back home, he didn't have a band, so I gave him half of my band. So then uh, Otis got big, and then he started his own label, Jodis Records. So Mr. Mitchell wanted Otis to record a song on me. But Mr. Mitchell got confused and sent me to the wrong place. And when I was supposed to be going to Muscle Show, Alabama, to meet uh, Otis so he could record me, then he was supposed to record Arthur Conley. But I went to the wrong place. Conley was already in Muscle Show, so Conley did Sweet Soul Music. Actually, that was supposed to have been my song. Oh really? So that track yeah. was was for was for you to sing on, but oh, that's that's an amazing story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, I got twisted up with that with Mr. Mitchell. You know, he got confused and sent me to Cincinnati when I was supposed to be in Muscle Show. Huh. So Otis never had to pay for the studio time. So since Conley was already there, he went on and did the song. That's 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 very interesting. Well, you're, you're, it's interesting because the style of your singing, like you said, there's a little Sam Cooke, there's a little bit of Otis Redding, uh, and you've always managed to sort of have have uh, a leg in in um, great ballads and great, you know, super uh, super hard up tempo numbers too. So I could imagine you singing that song uh, really well. Tell me about the end of that scene. I mean, what what. What years did the Cars Beach scene uh, stop, and 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 what happened? Was it when disco came in? Was it when uh, segregation ended? What happened? I think when disco came in, it knocked knocked uh, knocked a lot of artists out of work because uh, then we wasn't working a lot. There wasn't a whole lot happening at Cars Beach because the crowds wasn't coming because of the DJs. The DJs was making all the money. You know, people was going to the clubs and whatever too hear the DJ. So everything died down in the early 80s. Yeah, so what happened to you during that time? What did you do? Well, in the 80s, well, I had a barbershop. Uh, I was cutting hair and stuff like that. And I was doing a, a gig here and there, you know, at a club in D.C. Uh, called uh, Jackie Lee's Lounge. And I was doing a few gigs here and there. But then I had the barbershop that I was making my money, you know, so... Then after the years, uh, things started to fall back in place again with the music, you know, live entertainment. But by then, I had started doing gospel music. And I did gospel music. I had my own label called BP Records. And I had a big uh, hit out on my gospel label called Sending Up My Timber. 
So that started me doing gospel, and I'm still doing gospel. Matter of fact, I got a gospel gig this week, and I'm all over the place now. I'm doing R&B and gospel now, so I'm real busy. Yes, I noticed on your uh, website and on YouTube, I mean, there's tons of clips of you uh, singing gospel, and on your website, I know that you're selling a bunch of gospel releases folks can check out. I mean, uh, tell me what led you to that. Uh, was that something always part of your life? No, uh, things got so hectic, like in the 80s, like the middle, middle ages, like 85. I got in a little trouble with the, the law, got locked up in jail. And when I got locked up, it made me sit and think, uh, you know, how great God could be in my life. So then I had time to sit and think about where do I want to go with this? Because being out there in the streets, being wild, being tempted with this and being tempted with that, I need God in my life. So when I got locked up and got time in jail, I met Jesus. So that that started me with my gospel. So for some some performers can't do both. Some some performers think it's not right to to do both. Uh, for you, that's not a problem to keep those two worlds separate, or do you think they not they need to be kept separate? Well, the way I look at it. It's all, it all depends on your understanding about God, because God went everywhere. You know, he went everywhere. If he's going to just go to the, the righteous people, what are the unrighteous going to do? You know, so he had to go everywhere. So whenever I do an R.I.B. show, I always add God in it, because I usually close out the show with, my latest song, Lord, I'm so grateful for all you've done for me. And when I do that, man, people just go wild. You know, so I don't, I don't, I, certain gigs I won't do, I don't go into nightclubs anymore. I do venues and stuff like that, churches. You know, cause I don't go into clubs where they're doing a whole lot of drinking and smoking cigarettes and all of that stuff. And, and you know, you learn from your experience. You know, like four years ago, I had lung cancer. And it took part of my lung. I'm still here. Then two years ago, I had double pneumonia. God took care of that. I'm still here. I'm getting ready now to go to New Orleans. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm blessed by the best, you know. Yeah, well, I can tell. I mean, I can vouch that you really can still sing. And I mean, and a lot of guys get to your age and, uh, you know, they don't quite have the the pipes. I guess one of the things that works in your favor is that you always had a little bit of a, a kind of a, a huskiness, a raspiness, sort of like Otis Redding in your singing style. Uh, and now that you're an older man, it, it's still there, but it, it really, it, it, it works for you, you know? And, and I think uh, if folks don't believe me, they can go online and, and uh, Google Winfield Parker and, and, uh, and see some video of you recently just singing singing 100%. Uh, so uh, you just mentioned it, Ponderosa Stomp, October 5th and 7th. Uh, like I said earlier, you've got a lot of different styles. You've got some really funky records and some super up-tempo records, like like dizzyingly fast. Uh, uh, what are you going to be doing uh, in New Orleans in October? Well, I'm waiting for them to let me know what songs they want me to do, because, you know, I could stay on stage for two or three hours, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm trying to wait to see which songs they want me to do, because a lot of those songs I haven't done in years. 
Yeah. Well, that's one of the great great things about Ponderosa Stomp is they do sort of get folks to sing songs that haven't uh, been sung in years, and that's kind of half the fun of it. It's just uh, so so uh, folks should should really look forward to that. Um, t- tell me about there's this, there's one thing I've never quite understood. Uh, I'd love to know the story behind uh, two songs. She's so pretty and funky party. They're really the same exact backing track, right? Well, no. Uh, She's so pretty. Mr. Mitchell cut that on me first. We was in uh, D.C. We did that in D.C. But then in the process of him turning me over to Jimmy Bishop, we changed the words to Funky Party. So I wrote the song, but, you know, we changed it over to Funky Party. Whose idea was it to, to, to take the same song and just change the words? Jimmy Bishop. Gotcha. Uh, well, that song is a total number one hit record. I love that record. That is that. Also, that's a fast tempo. You must wear bands out with that. That that, that was one of my favorite songs. Everywhere everywhere I go, you know, they uh, now they say, "Are you going to do Funky Party?" <laughs> so I said, "Yeah, I'll do it." You know. Well, Funky Party is like a, a number one hit song. We're going to hear it soon. Uh, I want to remind folks once again, WinfieldParker.com is your website. Folks can uh, get the latest uh, of what's going on with you and your music and your life and uh, your ministry. And uh, don't forget the Omnivore release, Mr. Clean, Winfield Parker at Rujack and the gig coming up in October in New Orleans at the Ponderosa Stomp. Winfield Parker, oh, it's been so fun and what an interesting uh, life you have had. Yeah, it's been very interesting. I, I just thank God that I'm, you know, just turned 75, that, you know, I've been through the storm, and I'm still going through a storm, but it's going to be all right. Yeah, it sounds like you've got uh, a kind of an amazing attitude. Uh, at you. I mean, you're a guy who's been on so many labels. You know, some some folks would feel uh, like they've had great opportunity and and feel real happy about that. Others, feel, but others, you know, you never had a giant hit. So, and some people would feel a little uh, anger or, or resentment or frustration. Which side of that do, do you fall on? Well, I tell you the truth. I'm just I'm just grateful that I'm still here because a lot of my friends that was that I came up with back in the day they're gone. You know, and it's not but a few of us left. But I'm just. That's like the new song I have out, the gospel song. Lord, I'm so grateful for all you've done for me. So I got to look look at it to be on the positive side. I can't look at what could have been or what should have been. I got to look at what's happening now. You know, so I'm I'm just I'm just good. I'm just. Grateful, you know, I'm doing just as much now that I was doing back then. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, well, you can't lose with that attitude. So it's it's terrific to hear. Let's hear Funky Party, and uh, I want to say thank you. Well, thank you for uh, having me on your radio show. <laughs>